1: Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
2: Today, the Starship Sofa is brought to you by Audible.com. For a free audiobook, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa. More about audible.com in the show. Yes, for the first time, Starship Sofa has a sponsorship for Oral Delights. I think the Oral Delights show is probably Starship Sofa's main kind of feature, and it would be nice to associate Starship Sofa this actual show with a sponsorship. And especially someone, you know, I've always wanted to kind of find someone who's basically associated with science fiction and who's associated with the books I like. And Audible.com, you know, everyone knows how much. I'm a kind of a listener of books instead of a reader of books. So I thought Audible.com is a nice one to go with. So today we have some great stuff in Oral Delights, the science fiction magazine. We have some poetry by... Bruce Boston, we have a flash piece of fiction by David Brin, no less we have the main story tonight is by Jeff Vandermeer called Secret Life, which is a Belton story, and Amy Sturgis with her regular column has an an article on a speculative writer you might like to get to know so please join me (laughs)
3: CONFESSIONS OF A BODY THIEF BY BRUCE BOSTON To take a stranger's mind and wear a stranger's face, to step into another's flesh and claim a life in toto, was a talent I discovered at a raw and tender age, when the world itself was changing in unexpected ways. Youth was in rebellion, generations ripped apart. A war on foreign shores and injustice on our own soon led to cries of protest and bloodshed in the streets. Consciousness expanded like a roiling mushroom cloud. Those who offered answers said it had to do with love. Amidst the fervor and the rage, I could have any life I chose. From a pompous politician, feeding on the masses' needs, riding high in limousines, to a real thin rock idol, prancing on a concert stage with women in the wings. Flush with youthful vigor, a burgeoning libido, and a head full of ideals, I promptly chose the latter, without a shade of doubt. Wielding my axe like a pen, and often like a sword, I defined a shaggy credo, my generation's song, with the lyrics of another I felt the wild exultation of ovation upon ovation, and the instant adulation that music can engender. I lived my life so rapidly, losing track of night and days, the drugs within my veins, time bunched and crushed together like the jackknifed cars of a derailing train. When my body overdosed, I abandoned its dying shell. After a one or two false starts, I settled on my second host. I became a cybernetic genius, worked for IBM and RAND. I calculated decimal points to infinity and back again. I'd never mastered logic and never cared for math, but I had another's brain and a Ph.D. from MIT to think in algorithms and converse with binary. Abstract numbers galled, so I pursued the real sort, the kind with dollar signs that can buy a luxury yacht to sail on the Côte d'Azur. I was a Wall Street whiz kid, a black belt of the exchange, trading stocks and debentures until I made a hundred million. Then the junk bond scandal hit, and for the novelty alone I spent a year in prison. Once I surfaced as a woman, more seductive than sin itself. I learned what men will do for the lust that they call love. I learned how they'll compete like fierce animals in heat, to possess a surface beauty and caress a shapely thigh, with no interest or concern for whatever lies beneath. I became a different woman and fought for women's rights, I battled like a termagant, with overblown executives for an equal scale of pay, for acceptance and promotion on the corporation ladder, and all that should be mine. The end result of this was I soon became another man. I've been brown and black and white and yellow, and all the shades between. I've toiled stooped and sweaty through the sun-baked fields. I've sat in the awning shade with a cool drink by my arm sporting an evil overseer's grin. I've penned a best-selling novel and composed a symphony. Like a chameleon understudy, I have played most any part as I moved across the stage of this metamorphic age, yet all of it soon paled without my own identity. I've cruised and skimmed along the skin of things, like a surfer on a wave, a rock skipping across a lake, or a raindrop on a window that reflects the room beyond, but can never find a passage through the surface of the pane. I've looked into the mirror, but never passed my eyes. I've only known my ego, its desires and its needs, the ocean's tidal roar that belies the silent deep. My future now stands open like an endless avenue, for every time I start to age I seize on youth once more. Yet, is it worth the trouble to keep changing hats and coats, not in rhythm with the seasons, just to please my petty whims when my soul is lost forever in the shuffling and the rippling of a hundred different skins? If there is a kind of answer that has to do with love, if consciousness can change and the world can follow suit, I am not the one to judge. I have stolen other lives, I've ravaged mind and limb, I have left my spirit far behind and forsaken my own name. First appeared as a signed, limited-edition broadside, Talisman 1998, 1999 Riesling Award, SFPA, Best Long Poem.
2: Thank you, Bruce Boston, for that poem. Don't forget, copyright is Bruce Boston. Check out hit the link on the website over to Bruce's site. And Julie Davis. Julie, thank you very much. I will be getting some more stories and poems over to you. <laughs> so again, Starship Sofa's Oral Delights is sponsored by Audible.com go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa you're entitled to a free audiobook sign up and that book is yours how cool is that one of the things what kind of sweet is to go to audible.com is they're really making quite big strides to kind of get into the kind of science fiction mold of things and you know they're getting on board some like big writers there the guest editor this month is Kevin J. Anderson. And we'll have a short story by Kevin J. Anderson coming soon. So you can even just go to Audible and check out the guest editor, what he says there. And Audible have set up their Audible Frontiers. This is their kind of signature line in speculative science fiction. New releases from there. Demons Are Forever by Simon R. Green. Keeper of Dreams, Volume 1, Austin Scott Card. The Snow Queen by Mercedes Lackley. The Sharing Knife, Louise Macasta Boujoyd. They've got the novel Seeker, unabridged by Jack McDavid. Little blurb here for you. Alex Benedict and his assistant, Chase Colpath, return to solve a riddle that leads to the edge of known space in this 2006 Nebula Award winner Jack McDavid tale. Recovery Man, unabridged by Christine Catherine Rush. Retrieval artist Miles Flint has uncovered a secret to his past linked to the kidnapping of a mysterious recovery man in a case that threatens the entire Earth's Alliance legal system. And the classic Roger Zeleny's This Immortal. In this Hugo-winning novel, escorting an alien grandee around shattered post-nuclear war Earth is not something Conrad relishes, especially when he becomes central to determining Earth's future. And if you go there as well, what's actually good, you got Austin Scott Card selects... And you can listen to that, you know, and he selects, like, a, a book or a, a novel which he thinks is, is good this month. He selects this time, The Big Time, by Fritz Lieber. So pop over to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa and choose a free book. Who knows, Old Man's War might be your little tweak. Next we have... My good friend Amy, Amy Sturgis, and her regular once a month article on anything science fiction, anything really that Amy decides to talk about. It's a writer that I've never even heard anything about. So when I actually, and that's what, you know, that's one kind of one of the things I like about getting pieces of the fact articles is I don't know anything. So when I first get them, I don't book at all. (laughs) It's, It's really nice, it's interesting to me to listen to this actual show as a listener, you know? So, so, Amy, who is it?
4: Today I'd like to draw your attention to a pioneering figure in speculative fiction, one who has for a long time been forgotten, but who is now poised for a well-deserved comeback. His literary descendants include some of the tallest giants of speculative fiction, including Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft... J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Stephen King, and Neil Gaiman. I am referring to Friedrich de Lamotte fouquet or the Baron de Lamont-Fouquet, who lived from 1777 to 1843. Of course, not every author across the centuries is or can be remembered, read, and revered, But the Baron was not just any author. His merits are not exclusively those of 19th century literature. And I think this is one of the reasons that we're seeing his works be reprinted today. There's much to recommend Fouquet to contemporary readers of speculative fiction. Many of his stories have the immediacy of an episode of The Twilight Zone or a good Terry Gilliam film. The London Magazine of July 1820, in its review of Fouquet's story, Sintram and His Companions, summed up the appeal of the Baron's work. I quote, It bears a northern, stormy, misty aspect. It is crowded with names and images of an icy, bleak, rugged, and frowning cast. It presents to our observation nature in desolation and human beings in savage gloom. Demons laugh throughout its pages— Deadman's bones clatter, swords clash, and tempests howl. Now, I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like good reading. The Baron influenced some of the figures who would play key roles in the development of modern science fiction, such as Edgar Allan Poe, whose Tales of ratiocination really set the stage for the further development of SF. Poe read and studied Fouquet's publications, and in 1839, He wrote of Fouquet's short story, Undine, praising the baron's, and I quote, exquisite management of imagination, proposing, quote, that the whole wide range of fictitious literature embraces nothing comparable in loftiness of conception or in felicity of execution to those final passages. Nearly 100 years later, H.P. Lovecraft reacted with similar enthusiasm, In his bibliographic essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, in which he showed no qualms about calling the work of some of his predecessors trash, Lovecraft praised Fouquet as, quote, an accomplished artist in the field of the macabre, and the story Undine specifically as, quote, the most artistic of all the continental weird tales. If Poe, Lovecraft, and others appreciated his work so much, then why is Fouquet not a household name today? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. In his homeland of Germany, for a number of years, uh, particularly 1810 to 1818, he was unparalleled in popularity, the hero of common readers and the darling of royal admirers. But eventually, after the land experienced occupation and war and civil unrest, Intellectual fashions changed, and his variety of romanticism was really left behind. He was seen, in a way, as sort of a historical anachronism. Readers in Western Europe and the Americas, uh, who were not ready to discard this kind of romanticism, were enthusiastic about his work, but readily distracted by an emerging new kind of publication that was designed to deliver quick action and short-term thrills in a very inexpensive package. These are the ancestors of the so-called penny dreadfuls. It seems the timing was poor then for Fouquet to be exported west. The monthly review in October 1820 provides an interesting perspective. While celebrating Fouquet's so-called strange and fearful imaginations, the journal compared the baron to caviar, saying that his work was in a higher class and perhaps for a more refined taste than its competitors'. Other authors counted on, quote, a quick though not solid observation aided by a lively fancy, while the Baron's message was, quote, in its essence more permanent. The journal went on to compare the writings of Fouquet with the art of Michelangelo. So in some ways, perhaps, the Baron's unique brand of supernatural and speculative literature was a bit too early or too late, or too good for its time. In fact, for English readers, Friedrich de Motte Fouquet really fell off the radar. But he was not lost, and as a matter of fact, he's back. So what I would like to do is provide a whirlwind tour of Fouquet's key works, give you a sense of why you should care about this 19th century author, and I hope convince you to help make his comeback a lasting one. I should admit at the outset that I am not a disinterested observer of Fouquet's literary fate. In 2006, it was my honor and privilege to edit the Baron's three-book masterpiece, The Magic Ring, as a single volume published by Valancourt Books. This publication represents not only the first scholarly English edition of The Magic Ring, but also the first English reprinting of the story in any form since 1876, And the first version of the Robert Pierce Gillies translation, which is by far the best and most reader friendly since 1825. So yes, I am intimately connected with and invested in the Baron's Return. But as I devoured Fouquet's fiction and researched the responses of those who discovered it, read it, and used it as inspiration in their own works, I could not help but think I was uncovering a well-kept secret, one that needed to be shared the baron incorporated many ingredients into his fiction, including a detailed knowledge of and enthusiasm for ancient mythology, a fascination with medievalism, chivalry, and warfare, and a taste for exotic locales. But common threads do exist in his work. For instance, even his most pleasant and celebratory scenes are tainted with dark, stern uneasiness. It is appropriate that in 1880... English author Charles Kingsley called one of the barons' tales of conversion and spiritual redemption, which is a story with as much of a happy ending as he ever provided, quote, very sad, morbid, if you will. Again, that's my kind of stuff. But allow me to illustrate, to give you a bit of Fouquet 101. Fouquet's Undine, which was the favorite of Poe and Lovecraft, and Incidentally, which is today republished in the 2008 anthology Tales Before Narnia, The Roots of Modern Fantasy and Science Fiction, which is edited by Douglas A. Anderson and available from Del Rey Publishers, it first appeared in 1811 and in English in 1818. In this tale, the Baron put down his own dark twist on a classic folktale, Believe me, this is not your parents' The Little Mermaid, or for that matter, Walt Disney's The Little Mermaid. In Fouquet's version, Sir Holdbrand, a knight on a quest, suggested by the woman he loves, investigates a haunted wood, and in so doing encounters a fisherman, his wife, and their wild and perverse, and of course beautiful, adopted daughter, Undine. The reader learns that she is a water spirit, a different creature altogether from humans, sent by her father to meet and marry a man in order to gain a soul and the opportunity of an afterlife. Despite his ties to his first love, the knight marries Undine, and she is changed into a loving and lovely young bride. However, as critic Charlotte M. Young explains, Fouquet believed, quote, the grosser human nature is unable to appreciate what is absolutely pure and unearthly, end quote. Sir Holdebrand's heart is untrue, and his faithlessness not only brings the wrath of Undine's water-spirit family, but also eventually condemns Undine to watery exile once more. His choice to marry again, even while his first wife still lives, albeit underwater, is his death sentence. If the Baron is chilling in his description of maiden Undine's soullessness, he is even more compelling in his description of her lamented but just vengeance, as she, now a creature made of water, embraces and drowns her husband on his wedding night. I have wept him to death, she says. It seems more ominous than sentimental when the wronged Undine fashions herself into a silver spring surrounding her knight's cold grave. The story's gravity and simplicity are its strengths. Poe said, quote, Undine is a model of models in regard to the high artistic talent which it evinces, we could write volumes in a detailed commentary upon its various beauties. Other stories besides Undine also deserve to be read, remembered, and enjoyed by modern audiences. For example, there's Oslaga's Night, a short story which was written in 1813 and translated into English by the British essayist Thomas Carlyle in 1827. This story is available In various places, including uh, Project Gutenberg's online free archive, this story tells the tale of Froda, a young and dream-filled knight who falls in love with the hauntingly beautiful Aslaga when he reads about her in a book. The fact that she has been dead for many years makes very little difference to him. He fights in her name and pledges himself only to her. His acts of courage and chivalry and generosity win her heart from beyond the grave. Does this sound like something Neil Gaiman would write? And she returns for one night as a beautiful specter to dance with him, appearing, quote, as his lady beside him, rather floating than dancing, beaming light from her golden hair so that you could have thought the day was shining into the night. As the evening closes, the young warrior minstrel follows his mistress into death where they can be together. On the one hand, this is a happy tale of the timeless virtues of faith and love and character, First impressions, however, may deceive. As Carlyle said of the Baron's style, A faint superficial gaiety seems to rest over all his images. It is not merriment or humor, but the self-possession of a man too earnestly serious to be heedful of solemn looks, and it plays like sunshine on the surface of a dark pool, deepening by contrast the impressiveness of the gloom which it does not penetrate. Ah, I love that description. The dark pool is there in all its impressive gloom when a promising young man offers his corpse on the altar of love. Another classic legend Fouquet revisits is the 1814 story The Field of Terror, which was translated into English in 1820. And this, in fact, uh, appears as an appendix in the 2006 Valancourt Books edition of The Magic Ring. In this story, a poor couple inherits a field no other family member will accept because of its reputation of being haunted. The young Conrad insists on working the cursed land and providing for his wife and young family, while, as he describes, quote, a strange ghostly looking figure that starts up now on one side and now on another, mocks at my labor and interrupts me both by gestures and by words. Conrad is a former soldier, and he withstands the taunting of the goblin because he has no other choice. The field of terror drives away all would-be assistance, and farming is his only means of providing for his household. Eventually, his tenacity earns him the respect of the goblin, Rubizal, the haunter of the field, and the two strike up a deal that allows Conrad to farm and Rubizal to enjoy temporarily the education and peace of domestic life. Rubizal is not reformed or unmasked. He remains a goblin. But in the end, a lasting truce between man and monster is made, and Conrad's courage wins him unmolested access to his field. This story in particular has uh, a feeling that reminds me of episodes of The X-Files, or Millennium. These are but a few illustrations of Fouquet's dark imaginings. There are many more, such as the Twilight Zone-esque story The Vile Genie and the Mad Farthing, which is the tale of a young man who purchases a black imp that can produce unlimited wealth for its owner, The young man knows he must sell the creature for less than he paid for it, or the devil will possess his soul. When he fully comprehends his peril, and the fact that unlimited wealth by itself can be its own curse, he finds it incredibly difficult to find a willing buyer, even as he tries to protect himself from mortal danger for fear of utter damnation. The miniature goblin dances ecstatically with each repeated return to his owner, a macabre celebration of the young man's impending doom. I should make one plug for The Magic Ring, Fouquet's uh, three novels in one, as his great masterpiece. It's perhaps the best illustration of his breadth of literary knowledge and abilities, as it ably reflects historical adventure, religious allegory, chivalric romance, and gothic nightmare, all tied together in a package uh, of speculative fiction. This work opened the door for future authors such as William Morris, to rework Norse mythology into modern fantasy, and through fantasist George MacDonald reached Inklings C.S. Lewis and J.R. R. Tolkien. Moreover, the structure of this book, stories nested within stories, reminds one of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, or Dan Simmons' Hyperion sequence, or most recently, Ted Chiang's The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate. Only at the close of the tale do all of the individual threads meet and form a coherent and compelling whole. The overarching story is something like this. The protagonists, cousins Otto and Bertha, become entangled in a quest for a ring that has unusual properties. This eventually leads Otto to prove himself as a knight in a conflict involving not only other warriors, but also sorceresses of natural and supernatural and fiendish arts and Bertha to seek solace first in magic and then in religion. The two reunite when all of the repercussions of their adventures and travels come home in a spectacular finale. If this were eventually uh, adapted into a film, I can only imagine what modern special effects would be able to do, really create a CGI extravaganza worthy of Peter Jackson or George Lucas. Reading the short stories and novels of Baron de Lamont Fouquet, it is easy to understand why the author influenced other great writers and led critics to compare his writings to caviar. His work represents some of the best of the genre's history, while his stories remain immediately accessible, entertaining, and fascinating for contemporary readers. In 1820, the Monthly Review said that his appeal was permanent and that, quote, Baron Fouquet appears, indeed, to unite the delicacy and rich pathos of Tasso with something of the wildness and terrible delineations of Shakespeare. That's hardly faint praise. I hope this little introduction to Friedrich de Motte Fouquet will inspire you to check out his writings and see what all the fuss is about.
2: Amy, thank you very much for that. It is much appreciated. Next, we have our little piece of flash fiction by David Brin, no less. And actually, David Brin has a new book out called Through Strangers' Eyes. And I'll just give you a little write up on it, a little review of it. In a new collection of book reviews, introductions, and essays on popular culture from David Brin. From carefully measured views on J.R.R. Tolkien to the infamous outrage rant about Star Wars saga, along with appraisals of great authors like Brunner, Resnick, Zelazny, Clark, Verno and Orwell, and all the way to fun rifts on The Matrix and Buffy, more than two dozen reviews and commentaries that are sure to enlighten, entertain, possibly infuriate and even make you laugh, but above all, offer some perspectives you've never imagined before. So I'll put a link on to David Brin's new book, and hopefully you will pop over there as well and check out David Brin's site and new book. David, much appreciated for this short fiction, and the title is in French, so... (laughs) My apologies, David. I will certainly get this wrong. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents To Chou Voix by David Brin.
5: A Secret Service agent walked into the bar. She called for attention. Folks, she announced, in moments Oliver Morton will be here. I think you all know what that means. From my regular booth by the window, I saw several customers abruptly get up and walk out. The brave, or curious, remained. Morton, yeah, I remember him, said Sam the bartender. He's the old-time space explorer who came home but refused to go into seclusion, right? The Secret Service agent nodded. That's right, so don't bother him. If anyone here reminds Morton of his past, it might trigger a déjà vu attack. Too much familiarity and we may find this building on another planet. Déjà vu. I suppose everyone's fallen into this odd mental state without realizing it's a clue to time's true nature. Epileptics once dreaded Deja Vu because it seemed to foretell seizures. Little did they suspect that the Grand Mall might lead to something wonderful, a door to the universe. I hear they've got neuroconvulsive hyperdrive perfected nowadays. Modern pilots have it easy. They needn't endure terrifying seizures to attain that special mental state which propels a spaceship starward. To modern spacers... Induced déjà vu is a key. To old-timers, though, it's pure terror. Sudden recognition could trigger a jump seizure, so don't approach him. If he feels safe, maybe he'll mingle. Talky bodyguard. Most old-timers retreated to cozy surroundings and stayed put. Ex-crewmates avoid reunions. Stubborn Morton, though, keeps moving. He's a free man, so the authorities send bodyguards ahead to warn people. Time's funny. It flows, then surges like a convulsion. I sit and wait, feeling years. Through the window, I see a face approach. Familiar. Captain? I should have left before this. Already my hands are shaking. Still... It's nice to see again the stars.
2: Thank you very much, David. Don't forget, copyright is David Brins, and he's he's been especially kind to the Starship so far. He gave us a story once before. So, David, thank you very much. Our good friend, Jim Caminella. Jim, always a pleasure, sir, never a chore. (laughs) Jim's promised in the future to do a couple of little science facty articles. He is a lecturer. As if he hasn't got enough work now with the newborn baby. How's it going, Jim? Hope everything's fine there. Mm, sleepless nights. Jim, thank you very much for that. And I was just wondering if anybody else out there in the academic world or anything to do with the sciences or anything fact-based wants to maybe get in touch and do a little article for Starship Sofa. We've got our regular... Starship Sofa article columnists, you could say. But it's always nice to hear from anyone else who's got an idea for an article. Get it played on the show. Drop me a line, starshipsofa at gmail.com. Next week, come on to the final segment of Oral Delights for this week, the main section. It is a story by Jeff Vandermeer. We've already played a story by Jeff Vandermeer, Shark God, and actually it was narrated by Grant Stone as well. And I think Jeff Vandermeer has just—it's got like in a certain little... Specialness, you could say, eh? (laughs) Poor words, but you know what I mean? And it's just, some of these stories are just kind of classics, I think. Just a little background on Mr. Jeff Vandermeer. Multiple award-winning fantasy author with book published in over 20 countries. Vandermeer has collaborated on short films with rock groups like The Church and has fiction adapted for promotional purposes by PlayStation Europe and writes for the Amazon book blog and The Washington Post, no less. His online non-fiction has been name-checked frequently by the likes of Elliot Times, Boing Boing, and many more. With his wife, Anne Vandermeer, the fiction editor for Weird Tales, he is the co-editor of Best American Fantasy, Fast Ships, Black Sails, Pirates, Steampunk, New Weird, and many more. Together, they have taught writing workshops and given lectures all over the world. This literary power couple, this is Boing Boing, has been profiled on... Wired.com, NYT blog, and on National NPR. I think I'm rather chuffed to be getting another Jeff Vandermeer story. And we have two more in the bag, ready to go. (laughs) So, Jeff, thank you very much for this. Again, like I said before, it is narrated by good friend Grant Stone. Like I say, Grant is working furiously on the backside of the sofa. And... Actually, he says, uh, I'll stop doing the narrations, Tony, and we'll just concentrate on kind of pushing the sofa and stuff like that. Yeah, Grant, like, that's going to happen. You'll get more emails off me now. So have a listen to this story. And you know what I think, this is my kind of take on this story, why I kind of like it and why it's, and I think what Grant does, is so clever, it's so subtle with this story. It's just, he just makes it into kind of almost hypnotic do you know what I mean? This story. And maybe if it was read by someone else, it might come out the same as well. I dunno, but I think Vandermeer's story and the way Grant just gets that story over to you. It's just like I say, the time just flies. So without further ado, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents
6: Secret Life by Jeff Vandermeer Legion A vision of the building from on high, five glittering floors surrounded by a dull, concrete parking lot. To the west lay a forest. To the east, the glint of a shopping mall, substantial as a mirage. To the north, highways and fast-food restaurants. To the south, the perpetual gloom, through which could be seen only more shadow. The building housed hundreds of people. They worked day and night, as relentless and constant as the seasons. The first four stories lay open to all, but no one could visit the fifth floor without a special key. Few had ever seen the roof. The stairs were used for emergencies only. Some of the elevators clanked and groaned. Some of the elevators, quiet and smooth as ghosts, rose and fell with limitless grace. Most inhabitants of the building, even the janitors in the basement, it was rumoured, preferred the noisy elevators. When the quiet elevators reached the first floor, a scream could sometimes be heard, as of an animal trapped and then crushed beneath their feet. The screams might continue for several minutes. No one knew what kind of animal it was, or how it came to be trapped there. Here be dragons. Over time, the inhabitants of the third floor grew to despise the inhabitants of the second floor. They cannot see what we see, the people of the third floor would say to themselves. Sometimes they would put an ear to the carpet and listen to the people on the second floor as they performed their empty rituals. They're no more intelligent than bees or ants, the people of the third floor would say and smile. Yet they still visited the second floor, often for no particular reason, and would talk to the blank-eyed people they found there. After all, they too had once lived on the second floor, before the growth of the company. Over time, language fell away from the people of the second floor as if words had been something gifted to them by those on the third floor. Over time, the words of those on the second floor came to seem like the hum of busy wasps or the sound wind makes through corn not yet ready to be harvested. Over time, the people of the third floor grew afraid, for reasons they did not understand. The pen. How did it get there, he wondered as he stared at it. The pen held in his manager's right hand had only an hour ago, been on his desk. With that pen, extinct, no longer made, refills imported from a foreign land, he had signed important documents, written condolences, drafted memos. The pen had a black obsidian exoskeleton, a fine, sleek body. Strange symbols had been carved into its surface. The point rode across the page as effortlessly as his fingers rubbing his wife's back. Might the pen be as responsible for his success as any other factor? The manager walked across his field of vision again. Behind the manager, conveyed by a film projector, images flashed across a screen. badges killing moles of men in trench coats, of complex diagrams, of open briefcases like wings. The manager continued his sing-song chanting of the training mission as the twenty-five trainees, one penless, watched him. Could he be certain a signed contract was binding without that pen? Could he be certain his good fortune would continue? and did his manager know what he'd done by taking the pen? Looking at the smooth, smiling face of the manager, he realised he could not be certain of anything. Images of falling bombs painted the manager's face grey and black. Anger began to glimmer inside the man, like moonlight reflected in a dark pool. He began to sweat, to fidget. His hand was empty. He could feel the phantom presence of the pen, as if he had lost a finger. The manager continued to pace and smile as he talked, sometimes pointing the pen for emphasis. Behind him, the bombs had stopped falling, and a man in a raincoat was walking slowly up the side of a barren hill. Above him, an observatory. Could the manager have taken the pen by mistake? No. Everyone knew what the pen meant to him. No one could take it from him, accidentally. Sweat flecked the man's forehead. He could not keep still. The pen had been a birthday gift from his wife, five years ago. She had given him the pen by hiding it between her breasts. She had made him hunt for it with his mouth, his tongue. After he had found it, they had made love for hours, urgently. He could not think of the pen without thinking of her soft, hot skin. He could not think of the pen without remembering her nakedness, shining in the dark room. Overcome, he rose. The manager stopped pacing. Is there a problem? the manager asked, his eyes cold. Steam seemed to rise off the top of his head, but it was only the screen behind him. Is there a problem, he repeated, when the man said nothing. All of the man's will focused on the pen. With a shudder, a sigh, the man shook his head and sat down. The manager gave him a sharp look, and then resumed his lecture. Behind the manager, the walker had reached the observatory, which had turned into a museum, which had become a library, and then was gone, replaced by the V of geese migrating across thin, light blue air. And the time between the manager's curt words and the man's realisation that he was capable of killing the manager yawned across that expanse of sky like the slow curve of his own signature. Sometimes. Sometimes, sitting in the basement, staring at a dim green light through a murky portal, the janitor in training had a strange longing for another life, a life he received an inkling of in the small hours of the night, in a stray sentence of conversation curling away from him around a corner of the office. A chance meeting, on a crowded elevator. A life he knew he would never find, too enraptured by or entangled in the life he'd already chosen. Every day he eyed the back of his trainer with suspicion, and found less logic in the speeches of the head janitor. Conquest At dusk one day, the company that had colonised the second and third floors conquered the first and fourth floors as well. For months they had sent their employees to work on one... Or four. For months, these new employees had infiltrated the first and fourth floors. The liquidation, when it came, was swift and brutal. Cruel smiles, locked doors, blood sprayed across walls, carpet, ceiling. No one on the outside heard the shouts and screams. No one came to help. The janitors in the basement, balanced, teetering on their chairs as they watched television screens filled with snow, paid no heed, even to the muffled echoes that descended to them from the air ducts. For a time, all was still. All was quiet. The outside of the building glimmered with patchwork lights. The sounds of traffic dulled into silence. A wind came up and the nearby forest rustled with the music of leaves. To the east, the shopping mall lost the glitter of its neon signs. To the north, the highways slowed to a sometimes car, flaring like the tip of a cigarette. To the south, the sudden stars cut off abruptly, victims of the nameless gloom that hid the south from all but the most piercing gaze. The moon, like a cross-section of rounded bone, rose into a deep blue-black sky. Crickets broke into song. The quick brown shadows of nighthawks began to glide over the building. Then, faintly, quiet and yet so clear, a sound came from the top of the building. A knife against a glass. A pen against a coffee mug. An exhalation of breath. A softly muttered curse. The scuffle of
3: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com
1: slash host.
6: Feet. A lunge. A thrust. On the roof, the owners of the victorious and vanquished companies met in hand-to-hand combat. Two identical fat men in dark suits. They sweated as they swore and swung at each other. Grappled. Gouged. Bit. Bit. Their ever more numerous wounds did not seem a part of them, caused by the other, and thus somehow part of the other, each wound hurting the giver. The morning would find them huddled together on the roof, as peaceful as if they had died in their sleep, conquest finally complete. Interlude 1 The company that occupies the first through fourth floors of the building has a secret name. This name is never spoken aloud and almost never written down, A few people have seen its syllables at night, in confidence. The name glows a fiery gold when looked upon. Those who see it are said to be changed forever. Some leave the building immediately. Others rise so fast in the company that they ascend to the fifth floor, and few ever see them again. The secret name of the company is older than the company itself. It will remain long after the company is gone. The Vine The office building was a long rectangular box with miserly vents and faulty air conditioning. The inhabitants of the building breathed air that their predecessors had breathed years ago. Some argued that breathing this air perpetuated a sense of tradition in all employees. Most said it made them ill. One day, a woman on the fourth floor began to grow a vine in her office. At first, she feared the cutting, taken from a patch of soil near the great gloom of the south, would not grow for her. But she so hated the austere look of her office, the grey-white ceiling tiles, the brown-worn carpet, the pale-grey desk and an old brown chair. The instant she placed the vine in a corner, on top of a filing cabinet, she felt better, as if she could breathe again. Her boyfriend laughed when he saw the vine. Like a pig with pockets, he said, looking around her office. They were having lunch. He worked across the street as the assistant manager at a bookstore. He always smelled of lighter fluid, for some reason. She liked his looks, but not his manner. I think it's a breath of fresh air, she said, determined to fight cliché with cliché. In the silence that followed, they ate their sandwiches and stared at one another. She thought about the shopping she had to do after work. Something mournful had entered the room. At first the vine blanched and would not bloom, even with the support of a trellis, even with enough potted soil and the direct light filtered through the murky glass of her window. She felt guilty, gave it more soil, added fertilizer, brought shades for the window so she could regulate the sunlight that fell upon its leaves. For months, the vine refused to grow, or to die. The woman forgot about the vine. She watered it, automatically, in much the same way she stapled papers together, or answered the telephone, or had lunch with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend ignored the vine, his disregard a palpable presence in the room. But one day, in the spring, she entered her office to a new smell, a fragrance unfamiliar to her. Perfume? Air freshener? No. It smelled vaguely of honeysuckle, of fresh berries, of vanilla, but wilder, more pungent. She turned toward the window, and gasped, almost dropped her purse. The vine had turned a dark, healthy green, racing up the trellis, muscular and thick. It had blossomed. Large, fluted flowers a bright yellow that had transformed it into a fountain of colour. The plant brought her great happiness after that. People complimented her on it. She felt better, because the air smelled like a garden all the time. The vine outgrew her small trellis. It outgrew the medium-sized trellis she brought in to replace the old one. At first she had clipped its offshoots, but found she did not really have the heart to prune it. It was too beautiful to contain. Oddly enough, her boyfriend now liked the vine, this change of heart irritated her, and she soon stopped seeing him. When the vine outgrew even the large trellis, she faced a decision. Cut it back, or give it some new outlet. The flowers were huge now, as large as any she had ever seen, and a pure yellow that gleamed like gold even in the gloom. The vine was taking over the office, but she still could not bring herself to cut into such a healthy plant. So one morning, she shut her office door pulled her chair over to the vine and climbed up onto it. Using a ruler, she pried up a ceiling tile. The top of the vine unfurled itself and sprang upward, as if it had been waiting for just that moment. It disappeared into the space she'd created between the tiles. From then on, her problem was solved, and she did not think about the vine for many months. The curl of vines as they reached the ceiling concealed the gap in the tiles. No one noticed. Her vine had become such a part of the office decor that few visitors ever commented on the tangled explosion of green and gold in the corner. Home They found the manager, after many years, finally. He had not quit without notice. He had not gotten trapped on the forbidden fifth floor without a key and died of starvation. Neither had he flung himself off the roof and landed in a drainage sluice, nor had the large billboard visible from his office the one advertising island holidays, been too great a temptation. No. They found him inside his own desk. A night janitor had triggered the secret latch under the right-hand filing cabinet, revealing the secret compartment, revealing the manager. He lay curled up inside, a man in a business suit, the skull now buried in the jacket, the leg bones loose in the slacks. He lay upon a simple bed, a pillow at one end, a tiny television at the other, a bottle of good brandy tucked into the corner. They found a peephole in the front of the desk. They found a toothbrush, floss, towels, a jug of water, snacks, cans of tuna fish, a can opener. Several people wondered if he had ever left the office. The night janitor remembered him staying late to compile reports or edit together the next training film. Some said that the images from those films had affected him, had seared themselves onto his skin these ghostly tattoos only seen when lights were off. In all ways, he had made his own coffin. It seemed only incidental when the company coroner discovered that someone had broken the manager's neck and shoved a very cheap ballpoint pen between the manager's teeth. No one knew why this should be so, nor could anyone recall a moment when the manager had ever been truly happy. Interlude 2 Some say that more people travel up to the fifth floor than ever come down. Others, that more come down than go up. Those on the first floor say the fifth floor is empty, while those on the fourth floor say it's full, but will not say full of what. A few have speculated that a vast ossuary fills up the space, a plateau of bones and skulls receding off into the distance, that no manager is ever buried outside the building, that this field of bones, if measured, is longer than the building could logically contain. The janitors laugh at such speculation. They like to say, wiser to ask, what is in the basement? But this, only the janitors know. Down there. We rule from the bottom up, the janitors say from their basement stronghold, knowing in their hearts that they could as well survive without the floors above as a turtle can survive without its shell. There exist two types of janitor in the office building. Night janitors... And day janitors they can be distinguished by how they manifest themselves. The night janitors rest in closets during the day among the brooms and mops, and do not emerge until dusk. The day janitors leave the building at twilight in large, unsmiling groups. The two types of janitor never meet, know each other only by their handiwork. the signs left in the patterns of swept floors, polished hallway lamps, changed light bulbs. they are as ghosts to one another. Each has created a mythology for the other, an act of faith. On the rare occasions when they by accident meet, they stare at each other as if seeing a stranger in the mirror, and to as much effect. Only one janitor travels between the two worlds of night and day, the head janitor, he who works during both light and dark, and really sleeps. It is the head janitor, bulked and bulky, tall and thick, who growls out orders in a gravelly baritone from beneath moistened lips, as much despot as cleaning agent. They listen, as if to a force of nature. During the day, he comes to the night janitors in their closets as a premonition of darkness, and they smile in their twisted sleep, dancing through the halls with mop and broom. He it is who gives voice to their thoughts, their desires, as he paces up and down the basement hallway, neither cleaned nor cleaner. You shall not think of them as your masters, he tells them. You shall not think of them at all. Your work exists independent of them, without them. They are as wraiths to you. Our faith has to do with honest labour, with the purification of the inanimate. This is how we pray and how we do our jobs. Remember that. They are nothing. A scrap of cloud. A hint of breeze. We empty their trash, the janitors intone. We straighten up their messes. We complete their very thoughts. They can as well survive without us, as without the very air. Their philosophy has descended to them through long years, from the floors above. From crumpled pages saved, from the backs of notepads casually scribbled upon and tossed aside. They are as likely to divine wisdom from a discarded sentence passed down from generation to generation, as from any reputable source. Theirs is a philosophy of scraps and fragments, the punctured code of incomplete memos and torn note cards. What words were meant as flotsam, they regain as compost for their ways. The head janitor cannot remember a time when he was not alive. He looks out sometimes, through the ground floor window that faces the south, and grumbles about the grey, the gloom. Clean, he mumbles. Cleaner. His bloodshot eyes widen and he trembles, in the grip of some secret emotion. Infiltration And the vine continued to grow, twisting its way across the inside of the ceiling tiles, winding its way past layers of insulation, found the air ducts, and began to colonize the building's arteries, harming no one, so that even the strange people of the second floor, with their clicking beetle speech, noticed that the air had become fresher. While in the basement the janitors grumbled and jabbed their mops into the air, for they had grown to like the stifling mustiness above the basement the vine still crawling and pushing its way through the building, filling every hidden corner, allowing mice to crawl over it and chew on its blossoms, their droppings over time, creating a thin layer of soil from which it grew stronger still, the infiltration continuing. The Shadow Cabinet Every second week of the month, on a Thursday, the Shadow Cabinet meet, all twelve men and women in black suits, rising frictionless and fast via the glistening silver elevator. On the fifth floor, the doors open with precision, and out walk, the shadow cabinet, eyes hidden by black shades, faces unsmiling, smoke-gray briefcases caught in vice-like grips at their side, silver cufflinks, black shoes so shiny the ceiling reflects in them. As they pass through the sliding glass doors to the receptionist's outpost, the shadow cabinet seems to flow or glide, their steps so smooth and controlled that they might as well be moving forward on an escalator. In neat rows of two they wordlessly pass by the receptionist. She, scrunched low in her chair, making herself as small as possible, mouse to their collective snake, and ripple into the fifth-floor conference room, a wide space without windows. The last two in line always stare back at her, nod once, and close the door. Outside the conference room an hour passes. No one knows how much time passes inside. No one has ever discovered the purpose of the meeting. No sound comes from behind the closed doors. Ever. The receptionist's part in the ritual is, by tradition, limited. After an hour, she will enter the now empty room, gather up the twelve empty, open briefcases, resembling the discarded exoskeletons of thick grey beetles, and toss them into the incinerator at the end of the hall. The briefcases feel hot to the touch long before she reaches the incinerator. Any curiosity this phenomenon might arouse in her, she quells immediately. It is not a job, she fears for. One week, she entered the room as usual, and was gathering up the briefcases when she felt an odd prickle on her neck. Turning, she looked up, and screamed, dropping the briefcases. There on the ceiling clung a man in a black business suit. His pale hands were splayed flat against the ceiling tiles. His eyes were large and luminous. When he saw the receptionist staring at him, he let out a soft moan, a shuddering shiver. And then he scuttled across the ceiling, in a series of quick darting movements, crossed over to the side wall and disappeared out the door, taking a route as far away from the incinerator as possible. Since that moment, there has been no curiosity so great the receptionist could not ignore it. Unexpected A green tendril of vine curled out from under one of the ceiling tiles. The janitor in training was certain it had not been there a moment before. It seemed to form a finger beckoning to him. For a minute or two he did nothing, dark eyebrows scrunched together. He looked around. Was this, perhaps, a test of his integrity concocted by the head janitor? Should he investigate, or not? He put down his pencil. The head janitor had assigned him the dull duty of requisitioning supplies. He had been writing down numbers in columns and crossing them out again, a scowling smile on his face. His parents had been artists. His grandparents had been circus acrobats. Yet he sat in the basement of an office building and created strings of numbers. If only he could lose the ability to write them. If only the numbers would, like leaves carried by the breeze, fly off the page and fall to the floor. The young man contemplated the curling tendril above him. It was not in his nature to ignore it. He could not ignore it, so he stood on top of his desk and peeled aside the ceiling tile, revealing insulation, the hollow area between the tile and the next floor, and a tangled welter of green vines and giant yellow blossoms. The sweet, sweet smell of the flowers overwhelmed him. He almost fell, just from the memories they brought back to him. They smelled like the perfume worn by his first lover. They smelled of even earlier memories too, like firewood burning in the fireplace of his childhood home, or the spices his father had used to season the pot roast for Sunday dinner. The young man breathed in deeply, and saw new numbers in his head, the chances of the head janitor noticing his absence, the chance of finding the source of the vine, the chance he might die of boredom while sorting through the inventory. Nothing added up. Nothing made complete sense. An image floated into his mind. Him, at the same desk for another fifty years, his lithe, muscular body, seemingly made for climbing in tunnels, slowly turned to fat and defeat. He leapt off the chair and found some sticky notes and a pen in a desk drawer, then took a big bag of change over to the vending machines, and bought as much bottled water and snacks as he could shove into his pockets. Standing again beneath the tendril, he hesitated, staring up at it for a long time. Interlude 3 The smell on the third floor did not come from someone's rotted lunch, but from an executive vice-president who, having lost a spoon behind the lunchroom refrigerator late one night, fell during his efforts to retrieve it, was knocked unconscious and died without a murmur in that small space, victim of the diet that had allowed him to fit. Not found for three weeks, the whole episode distasteful to his wife and four children, not to mention the day janitor who found the body and almost left it there, hopeful that at some later date, the white of picked-at bones might be more easily cleaned up. Beauty. It was a form of release, an escape, for the janitor in training to pull himself up into the air ducts, using the vine for support. As soon as he replaced the tile behind him, the young man felt lighter and happier. He almost laughed aloud. In the darkness ahead, the yellow blossoms glowed a friendly phosphorescent yellow giving him enough light to see by. Like a lithe and clever lizard, he crawled forward, first through one corridor and then the next, always leaving a trail of sticky notes behind him. The leaves of the vine brushed against his face. The flowers bumped against his nose. His eyelashes became dusted with pollen. I'm a bee, he thought to himself. Not unhappily. I'm a hummingbird. Below his hummingbird's self, through minute openings, he could hear the buzz of conversation, the reverberation of people walking just a few feet below him. Something about the secret life he had entered gave him a deep sense of satisfaction. Hours later, the young man had still not found the source of the vine. With astonishment, as he rested, the water bottles weighing him down, he realized that the vines had taken over every secret part of every floor. It might take a day or more to find the source. He could either turn back now, or continue the search until he was successful. It did not seem like a true choice to him. Minutes passed, or days, hours, or months. He could not tell. As he gave himself up to the search, he also gave up time. There was only the vine, the blossoms, his need. When hungry, he ate the sweet fruit of the vine, with its lingering aftertaste of regret. When thirsty, he licked moisture off the vines, or sucked water from the blossoms. After a while he could hear the vine, a soft undercurrent of sound, a hum that matched its glow of good health. He would fall asleep entangled in the vines, wake refreshed and continue on. Below him, at times, he thought he could hear the janitors grumbling among themselves, in their own language, and he would laugh silently, because now he knew more than even the head janitor. The vines, the floors, the confined, labyrinthine ecosystem that had come to life in the air ducts amidst the insulation, had its own rhythms and patterns. At regular intervals, for example, which he somehow equated with morning, a phalanx of mice would stampede down the vine, running right over him, their feet cold and tiny, their speech a deep chittering that he could swear sometimes held hints of human language. At other times, biting flies would assail him, dragonflies and frogs, dust and rivulets of water. Once, at the end of a long passageway, an animal with pale eyes stared at him, before vanishing into darkness. He felt himself twisting into the vine itself, so surrounded by leaves and flowers that surely they must sprout from him. At some point his clothing fell away from him, no longer necessary. He did not long for the sun or for any other living thing. Once, following a stray tendril of the vine, he burst from darkness into light, the vine having found its way out through a crack in the side of the building, and looked out into blue sky and gulls wheeling over the parking lot, four or five stories up. The light disturbed him. To the new senses he had developed, the light felt wrong. True light could only come from the source of the vine. He drove back into the darkness without regret. Finally, when he had reached a place that suggested there might be no separation between himself and the vine, he found the source. It started as a sudden stubbornness on the vine's part, a thickening that resisted his progress. He had to suck in his breath and flatten his stomach to wriggle forward. The vine grew bigger still, muscular and gnarled it cut into his skin, bruised him. He would have stopped and turned back, but a mote of light in the semi-darkness ahead caught his eye. As he grunted and groaned his way toward the light, the mote became a gash, and the gash turned into a gap in the tiles, smothered with leaves. His breath caught in his throat. Somehow, he had forgotten that his journey might have an ending. What if this was the source? What would he do? Slowly, heart-pounding, he wriggled into position and pried the tile open wider. Light flooded the space around him. He stared down. Below, the vine burrowed down into a large pot. To the right of a pot, a woman sat at a desk. She had brown hair and small hands that found their way over the keyboard of her computer by degrees, hunting for each key as if for the first time. Her face, as her gaze shifted from the computer screen to her window and back again, became now young, now older, sometimes tired, sometimes lively but always anchored by the deep eyes, the stare neither stern nor gentle. The smell of blossoms in his nostrils. The young man could not separate the vine from the woman. A feeling the young man had never before experienced flooded over him. He did not know what he had expected of the source. Salvation? Revelation? But she seemed as miraculous as anything in his imagination. A vision formed in his head of the two of them covered in the vines, making love their limbs rapturous with blossom and with root, the imprint of her hands burning into his skin. As if awakening from dream, the young man pulled aside two tiles and lowered his head and chest down into the room below. The woman looked up, gasped, pulled back in her chair. Oh, she said, her voice surprised but melodious. So you, he said in a cracking voice, unused to speech, and grinned. So you're the source, he said and wept for the face she turned up toward him was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen a confusion of tongues once through a glitch in the system an employee on the fifth floor was forgotten but remained on the payroll she had only one task to stamp approved on various documents several years before this job had required a full-time employee because so many documents had to be approved however that time had passed long ago Now, in an office on the opposite side of the building, another employee rushed to stamp rejected on a mountain of documents. The order of such things might again reverse itself, but for now the woman spent her days in languid anticipation of the next document, which might not arrive for several hours. The woman did not even have a window to distract her. A rare storm from the south had broken the window, and the janitors had replaced it with planks of wood. Sometimes she would peer through the cracks of light in the wood, but all that lay beyond was the sky. Had she expected anything different? Yes. Yes, she had. Mostly, the woman read or listened to the radio. Late in the day, she might dance or even drink whiskey from a flask. She did these things at home in her tiny apartment, too, but they felt more daring at work. Tiny grey mice that poked their heads out of cracks at the base of the wall near her desk provided the only break in the monotony of her routine. The first time she saw a mouse, she gasped and lifted the receiver of her telephone. The janitorial staff did not like mice. But as the mouse wrinkled its nose, scenting, and sidled out into the office, she put the receiver down. There was no reason to call. She had been acting out the role of someone who was not her. Instead, she took out the whiskey and poured herself a shot. It tasted crisp and burned her throat. Nothing this exciting had happened to her all day. As a child, she had spent summers on her grandparents' farm. She used to sleep outside, smelling clover, grass and the thick earth as she stared up at the sky. She would ride her horse for hours over the lush green countryside. Much to her grandfather's bewilderment, she had also tried to save mice from the half-feral farmed cats. The next day, the woman began to bring breadcrumbs, seeds and other scraps from her apartment. She even went to the store to buy cheese. As many as ten scruffy, nervous mice feasted on what she had brought in with her, Their quick, hesitant movements amused her. Their psychic abilities impressed her as well. They always disappeared, at least 15 minutes before the courier arrived, with the latest document to enjoy the stamp of approval. She found herself trying out names for the mice on a pad of paper. Charles, Lisa, Paul, Zeb, Gwen, Jonathan, Diana, Bob... After a while, as she sat in her office without windows waiting for the next document, she found herself listening to the chirping language of the mice as they bickered over a biscuit or a rind of cheese. The more she watched them as they spoke to each other, the more she began to understand the nuances of their speech. Once or twice, she lay on the floor and covered her arms with bits of cracker and seeds. The bristly feel of their whiskers, the softness of their noses, the delicate touch of their paws. All of this helped her to understand them. Several years passed. The woman's hair became flecked with grey. Her father and mother both died within a year of each other. The number of documents to be stamped never increased or decreased. Her entwined states of being friendless and alone were broken by the all too infrequent periods of happiness that only made her feel worse when they ended abruptly. But she did learn the language of the mice. So well did she learn their language that she was able to teach them elements of her own language. This happened slowly and steadily, so that she almost did not notice the change how the mice became her eyes and ears in other parts of the building, how they reported back to her on events and people that fascinated her. And because the viewpoint of a mouse is rather like that of a child, different and new and sparkling around the edges, their accounts were all the more entertaining and insightful. The woman let her hair grow long and did not bother to dye the grey out of it. She wore long patchwork shirts and slippers. She stopped drinking whiskey she no longer even bothered to say hello to the infrequent courier. Instead, she found herself speaking more and more often through her mice. The voices of the mice became her voice. They spoke out in rustles, and murmurs and chirps from the air ducts and the little holes in the vents and pipes. A dusty whisper that filled the building little by little until the janitors would look up from their jaded contemplation of the newspaper, struck by what seemed like a tongue of air in a place where no breeze ever blew. At least... This is the story some inhabitants of the building tell to explain why, at odd times, on elevators, in an empty hallway, voices can be heard, speaking through the walls. The Mimic Dressed in a black business suit, a Mimic appeared, among the office workers on the third floor. He set up his computer in a just-abandoned cubicle. The dull hiss of his grey, spackled monitor reflected ghoulishly off his chalky face. He had an odd way of staring at the monitor, with his head cocked to the side. He had wrists and hands pale as the underbelly of a toad. He did not talk much. He is not natural to this place, some said. None of us are, others said. If there had been fewer employees, perhaps the mimic would have been found out sooner. But the inhabitants of the third floor, now numbered in the hundreds, they pressed down into the emergency stairwells, where middle managers sat in bewildered little groups, laptops balanced on their cross legs. Everyone had to take lunch and shifts, for otherwise the elevators would groan too with the weight for hours. Even a half-desk of space was coveted as a promotion. Perhaps it was strange enough for the mimic to have taken a cubicle for himself, but stranger things soon occurred on the third floor. When the mimic began to pluck bugs from the stalks of his neighbor's hydrangea, the long pink tongue erupting from the pale, calm face, Everyone pretended not to notice. His neighbour told herself that it was really nothing, nothing important. After all, hadn't they acclimated themselves to the strange customs of the people who lived on the second floor? Gradually they noticed several other strange things about their new co-worker. For example, despite the dress code, he did not actually wear shoes. His feet just resembled shoes and when he ate his open-faced sandwiches of thick, green paste, he swallowed in such a way that his large eyes receded into the back of his head, as if pushing his food down like a frog. He wept almost continuously as well, which was disconcerting if poignant, although one co-worker remarked in a whisper that, since the new employee's face never changed expression, it may just have been room, not tears at all. The mimic smelled of cardamom and mango, sometimes of pears, sometimes of fresh rain on newly tilled soil sometimes he smelled like a thunderstorm come up from the south the mimic had violet eyes violet, sad, soulful eyes as someone said, sarcastically anyone who looked the mimic full in those eyes found themselves falling they would remember events or people they had not thought of in years they would feel a sudden compulsion to leave the building they would feel an ache, a yearning for something they could not quite name For this reason, most people avoided looking at the mimic directly. Shaking hands was also not recommended because his oddly curled fingers were always damp. The pads of both his hands and his feet were sticky and festooned with natural suction cups, although they did not learn this until later. At meetings, the mimic would imitate the chatter around him, but afterwards no one could remember exactly what he might have said, if anything. They just remembered it had sounded good at the time. The woman who shared the cubicle on his left often defended him. He's quiet, she would say. His lunch doesn't smell. He's polite. He's considerate of other people's privacy. For long hours the mimic stared out the window toward the south and wept the tears that might not be tears at all. It was not until the night the mimic was discovered, scuttling across the ceiling tiles in a twitching friendly of movement, sucking insects and spiders into his mouth, that the people of the third floor turned against him. The sight was too strange for them. It did not mimic them at all. He mewled as they bound his limbs. He made a soundless scream as they kicked him. He mumbled to himself as they hauled him into the elevator. By the time the elevator doors opened on the second floor, he'd gone limp, staring hopelessly off into the distance as they roughly dropped him in the second-floor lobby and brushed at their clothes in distaste. The mimic stared at them as they left. As the doors slid over their solemn, disgusted faces, they distinctly heard him speak to them but each heard something different. Reassurance, admonishment, joy, grief. When the elevator doors opened at the third floor, they'd all become very different people. Interlude 4 As for the darkness to the south, it never advanced or retreated, but, like a perpetual thundercloud threatening rain, remained in position, a wall of grey to block all traffic, all commos, all thought. There were those who had passed on into the south, but no one ever saw them again. Some nights, lights would be seen in the southern darkness, and in the morning strange creatures found dead at its perimeter. But over time it became as much a part of the landscape as the shopping mall and the fast-food restaurants. No one remarked upon it. No one cared. No one spared it a second thought. Liberation From floor to floor, the vine began to know its own deep green strength. The woman who had brought it to the building had left long ago with the young janitor, but it no longer needed her. Tendrils of an advance guard of triumphant yellow blossoms had found the outside of the building and begun to discreetly colonize cracks and indentations. Water coolers had been suborned to feed it. Any plant on any floor rooted in any kind of soil found a sly invader in its midst, a little curling vine exploring that soil with it. The plant began to thicken and mature within its hidden passageways. The blossoms hardened into fruit, blackened and fell off. The seeds sprouted in the most unexpected places, rattling through filters and vents to fall on desks and floors. The plant grew brown and tough. It could feel the sun all around it, but not upon it, except in that niggling place where it had reached the outside. That tiny scout sent back the most pleasurable of sensations. The vine flexed and pulled and writhed, Ceiling tiles popped in remote corridors. Walls bulged. The head janitor muttered darkly to himself about the end of the world. The peoples of the second floor embraced the change. They opened up their air system by order of their new leader, a pale man dressed in a black business suit who liked to climb across the ceiling. Great draping vines fell out of the ceiling, trailed across the floor. Soon a dense forest covered the second floor, and the people of the second floor lived among it in solitude and peace. The vine grew stronger still, until one day it filled every crack, every crevice, every secret area of the building. It had reached as far as it could go, and still the sun maddened and teased it. The building began to crumble from the pressure, the stone and metal subverted, infiltrated by vegetation, compromised beyond repair. The cascade of ruin moved inward and outward, everywhere revealing the miracle of green, a slow avalanche that took many weeks. First to leave were the peoples of the second floor. The vine rent a gaping hole in the side of the building, the vine feeling for the earth. They crawled down the vine, still buzzing in their fae speech, their possessions strapped their backs. Led by the mimic, they disappeared into the southern gloom, never to be seen again. It is said that when they reached the perimeter of that melancholy place, the mimic gave out a great cry, raised his arms, smiled widely. Others tried to fight back enlisting the help of the janitors, but it was no use. Cracks had appeared in the very foundation, and the sweet nectar smell of the vine was everywhere. The edifice began to crumble. The fifth floor, long since abandoned except by the shadow cabinet, fell to the street in an almost silent collapse in the middle of a cloudless day. Empty briefcases shattered on the pavement below. Now the building wore a cascading green fountain of vines down its sides. After a while, all was still. The company was no longer really a company anymore. Half had fled, most of the rest had been drawn back by the sheer rote power of routine, but this did not hold them for long. In pairs and packs they drifted away. Gradually, the parking lot became empty in the middle of the day. The officers nearby became abandoned, bereft. The vine kept growing, under the pavement, under the topsoil, coming up in odd and unexpected places, always seeking the light. Soon, Even the strip-moor lay abandoned. Birds flew overhead in thick flocks. The fruit of the vine fell where it would and took root everywhere. Stone and vine and steel, the slumped ruins of the building stood guard over squirrels and trees. Beneath the ground, the head janitor railed and shouted at his staff. They had successfully sealed off the basement from the vine, but now found their philosophy as useless as a basement without a building. Lighthouse One woman remained in the building, even after silence had fallen over it, even after the janitors had given up their struggle. Every afternoon she would walk from her apartment and climb through the rubble to her office with its ever-empty, approved box. The mice had long since left. She didn't mind. She was happy for them. They would send her words throughout the world, and one day they would come back and tell her tales of where they had been. She had long grey hair now but her stance remained straight as she stood by the cracked window framed by the hissing half-light of tentative fluorescent lamps powered by a chronically failing emergency generator. The woman neither lamented nor welcomed the death of the building. It was unimportant to her. She came back because there was nowhere else to go and nothing else to do. Her check, issued by some central location, was hiccuped out to her at irregular intervals by some bureaucracy that had not heard of the building's fate nothing ever changed in a way she found it peaceful looking out across the green watching the way the clouds sped across the sky through the broken glass the wind sometimes leapt into her office and she would close her eyes and enjoy the sensation of it against her face she had lost her voice but felt she did not need it anymore sometimes she would walk through the crumpled passageways the corridors that led to unexpected light and wonder about her co-workers she had never really known them before. Now, though, by the things they had left behind, she knew them well. She had found love letters buried in the rubble once, another time, a still-wrapped present. Fingerprints on a windowpane had caused her to stop and examine them, wondering who they had belonged to, why they had felt the need to place their entire hand against the glass. Every night, she would let the emergency generator sleep, turning out the lights on her floor. The stars would come out all at once, soft and glistening, the world would be reduced to a shadow, a coolness. At such times she would wrap her shawl more tightly around her and look back over her life, at the spaces in her life, the gaps. And she would be only a little sad. After a while she would take out her flashlight and shine it into the darkness, slowly turning and turning. The darkness ate the light. She couldn't really see anything clearly, just the outlines of shapes, of the vine, of the dull reflective chrome of a distant car approaching the gloom of the southern border. She did this for many nights. She didn't know what she expected to find, or why she had decided to shine the light. She only knew that the ruination of the building had released something within her. So she held the light, and flashed it out into the darkness. Then one night, from the deepest part of the southern gloom, a light shone back at her, a violet light, small but intense. She almost dropped her flashlight in surprise. Some say it was only the mimic, mimicking her from the safety of the southern gloom. Others, that it was just a reflection in a pool of water. Still others say it was her one true love, created from need and darkness. Is it you? she might have said. Are you the one? she might have said. She might have said nothing at all. But come morning, she was gone, never to return, her flashlight dropped on the floor of the office and all across the world there were only the sounds of the vine, the bees upon its blossoms, the ants collecting drops of moisture from its leaves and its own distant hum vibrating against the earth.
2: Don't forget, copyright for that story is by Jeff Vandermeer. Jeff, thank you very much for that story. It is really appreciated. Grant, thank you very much for that. Check out Grant's website. Can't remember it off the top of my head. Sorry, Grant. It's, links will be on the site. And it's a good time to mention the Flash Fiction because Grant is in charge of the Flash Fiction. Send it over to starshipsover at gmail.com. It will go to Grant and he will make his choice. 700 words, the maximum. It can be anything between science fiction, fantasy, horror. You know, bl- blur them edges a bit. Don't make it go over 700 words. Send it to starshipsover at gmail.com. And actually, there hasn't been that much sent in. So, you know, if you send it in, there's a good chance it might get played. And I'm, because I'm not going to go hunting for flash fiction from writers. This is, I want the flash fiction to be kind of, you know, a community thing where if anyone's out there who wants to send something, send it in and it'll, you know, go through the process. And lucky enough, you might get it played on the sofa. So that kind of wraps up. Oral Delights for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope everything's been okay. First time with sponsorship, audible.com. Don't forget that free audiobook, audiblepodcast.com slash sofa. And a little bit of announcement as well. There will be a new show coming very, very soon. So keep an eye out and listen out for that. Don't want to say too much just yet, but it's all the endeavours of my good self. If you'd be kind enough to, if you want to... Express your opinions. Send me an email, starshipsover at gmail.com, or pop over to the forums, links on the site. Don't forget, if you have an idea for a fact-based article you would like to suggest to me, drop us an email again, starshipsover at gmail.com. We'll have a chat about it and see where we go. That would be very nice. It would be nice to hear what you have to say. Until next week, I would just like to say goodnight from me. survive this terrible
3: ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Surship Sofa. Evacuation Procedure initiated.
0: Shovel set for watch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1...